Welcome to The Trail Ahead, conversations at the intersection of race, environment, history, culture, and the outdoors. We're your hosts, Faith and Addie. We bring on folks from all walks of life to have real, authentic, messy dialogue that can lead to tangible change. Here's a sneak peek from today's guest. I always often describe my community as a frontline community. We're, we're indigenous people who are often at the front lines of all these issues. And we're also the ones to take the brunt of, you know, any issues you can pick, like water justice, uh, food sovereignty, climate justice. Like we are at the front lines of those um, fights, more or less. That's Alex pachowski Begay, our guest this week. He is a Diné artist and activist and an incredible storyteller. We loved listening to stories about his grandparents, his art making, and what calls him to do the work he does. But that's enough for us from now. We'll let Alex introduce himself in his own words. So one of you can just um, introduce yourself in whatever way strikes you today and now. Hello, friends and relatives. My name is Alex pachowski Gay. I'm from the Navajo Nation um, in the Four Corners region of the United States. That's kind of my traditional home area. So that's where I'll say I am and where I'm from. When we say playing outside, what does that make you think of? And where do you go when we say that? Straight back to my res, back to my childhood. That's like my whole childhood was playing outside. Is is you know we really let I guess Mother Nature be our 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 caretakers for a lot of times. Can you talk a little bit about your childhood and and your upbringing and maybe how that influences like how you live your life now as an adult? Yeah, I think I had. I mean, looking back on it, I I just revel in how much of a blessing of a childhood I had. Um, I spent most of my time in between where I went to school in Ganado, Arizona. Uh, Luc Antiel is the name uh, in Diné. And then also at my grandma's uh, dwelling in Jeritro, which is, uh, I think the translation is Antelope Springs. And there's no running waters, no electricity. So a lot of my childhood was in that environment of um, creating our own things to explore. We did a lot of sheep herding. So a lot of my background is actually herding sheep into a canyon and back out. And that's what we did as kids. And we would go and haul water to drink and feed livestock. But we lived every day today um, being very present. There's not a lot of distractions. And, you know, you get up with the sun, you pray, you do all those types of things. You wash up for the day and you go out and start your day. There was no real, there was a real ebb and flow between the days because you were running via sunlight so when it got dark that's when you were inside and i still remember the sound of like a old um kerosene lantern at night that like soft hum and then the warmth of like a wood fire like those are my childhood memories that are so deeply ingrained in me like i just think about those things it's like places of comfort yeah so that's a lot of my childhood is being outdoors herding sheep from one one little grazing patch to another, making sure they're taken care of and being safe, and then spending time with my grandparents, which is something I really valued. And they didn't speak any English, so a lot of our interactions um, was in Diné, my, my first traditional language. And yeah, so I got to spend a duality of spending time with my grandparents out in the very rural Navajo Nation, and then I was very blessed to live in teacher housing. My dad was a counselor. My mom was a teacher. So we spent um, all of my my childhood was spent inside the teacher housing, which had electricity and running water, which is a, such a blessing on the res. It's not everybody's reality. So I kind of had this kind of cool duality. So I had a lot of respect and understood, I guess, the reciprocity of like being very fortunate to have running water and electricity and then also knowing the opposite of what it is to not have those things. So I think I was very fortunate in that way to um, experience both dualities of my own, yeah, of my own life. And your your grandparents seem like amazing people. I remember you telling us a story. I think it was about your grandfather, if I can remember correctly, but it just sounded like your grandparents are really special individuals. And it sounded like they had such an impact on your life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always attribute uh, a lot of my, even just my, uh, I guess, thought process to their the way they would speak to me about things. I remember specifically talking about my grandpa um, about 
bringing back the Navajo Churro sheep and how he was very instrumental in that. And he actually won an award from um, Arizona, like Lifetime Achievement Award. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Bringing back, say that one more time. Yeah. We were bringing back the Navajo Churro sheep. Um, a foundation was started by my parents called Denebeina, which is uh, sheep is life. It translated uh, Denebeina. And it, it was at a point in time and in, um, I guess the early 90s, there was kind of like a push, a resurgence to bring back um, the Navajo Churro sheep, which in the 1950s, they had a lot of herd reduction via the U.S. government. They came in and actually called hundreds of thousands of um, our sheep because they knew, I mean, it was a, it was a tool of um, genocide. You know, they wanted to remove any sort of food sovereignty away from us so they could control us easier. So they did that by getting rid of our sheep because that fed us, it clothed us. It did all the things necessary to survive out in these harsh conditions. And those sheep were actually very specially adapted to the area which they lived and they have long coats and that's where we make our beautiful rugs out of. But at that time in the early nineties, uh, it was less than 300 of them in total. They were an extremely endangered species. And through the help of another man who we adopted as my uncle, Lyle McNeil, Dr. Lyle McNeil, we helped, they helped um, get us the, the genome code, basically. And my grandpa was one of the instrumental people to finding these sheep out in these really rural back canyon areas. And they basically bred the population back into existence. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> a bit, right? It's like a little bit yeah. of history. Wow. That's incredible. It, it also is like, it's both incredible and it's devastating, right? That yeah. that yeah. had to happen. Right. My grandpa remembered those sheep as his childhood, you know, and that's the thing that he, he had this deep connection with these sheep. And I think that's exactly what led him to where he was at. It was, it was a very fluke chance um, encounter between my grandpa and now my adopted uncles because he was up in Logan University where Dr. Lyle McNeil was working on this project. And my grandpa, who knows no English, happens to stumble into his lecture and he sees a picture of this four-horned sheep. And that's another phenotype uh, that's very unique to Navajo Churro sheep is um, sometimes the rams will have four horns. And, and so he saw a picture of that and he says, and he's like, I, I know what that is. I've, I've seen this before. So he ran and like, found my mom to like translate and he's like tell me what this man is speaking about because he's speaking in english and he's a navajo man that doesn't speak english so he ran he's all excited and he grabbed my mom he's like come translate this and so my mom was translating to me and he said i know where those sheep are i know where i know where we can find those sheep basically and that's kind of how it started that chance encounter wow it's amazing like i think there's so many examples of the ways in which elder wisdom and knowledge is like so important and yeah I, I remember in college just being at this place where I realized that I didn't interact with younger people or older people most of the time I was like mm -hmm. you know in this in this four-year college and basically in this capsule of people right. my own age and then my professors and I just remember feeling that that was so strange to be living that way Right. <laughs> I I was also told that I missed a story related to all the only information I know about this story in this <laughs> is your gold tooth and your grandfather. Oh yeah. Was it that or it could have also been your adopted uncle now that you're speaking of him too. I can't mm. remember which story you told, but it was I, <laughs> I tend to tell lots of stories. Yeah. So buckle up. Uh, no. Buckle up. No, please, we want it. <laughs> so my grandpa's name actually is um uh, gold tooth. It, it would say bash bash boy boy ola is like how you would say it. So um he he actually had gold teeth and that was just like, you know, the dental care of back in the day. He's always had like gold fillings and stuff. And I guess um back in the descriptor days of how they would kind of name you, they just find an attribute about you and name you that basically. So so like my my great grandpa's uh John Slim Nez. And and that's is it's Slim and Nez is 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 the same word basically. Uh Nez is like Nez, it's like slim. So he was a tall, slender man. And I, I actually have that same phenotype. I'm tall and skinny, like my great grandpa. And so my grandpa was named Goldtooth for his gold teeth. And 
Um, interesting story. I was in New York um, with a few other, um, I, I make jewelry. I guess I should preface that. I'm a third generation uh, Danae Silversmith, Navajo Silversmith. And so I was in New York and I always wanted to have a piece that I could um, have for my own self that would basically pay homage to my grandpa gold tooth. So I wanted a gold tooth and I have this one tooth that's kind of like a snaggle tooth, you'd say. And I met this man, his name is uh, Gold Cap Charlie. And so when I met him, he reminded me a lot of my grandpa because he didn't actually speak that much English. He's a Korean man. And through my friend Jules, we got into like a just like a talk about collaboration and doing this piece together. And, you know, we just started out in this piece. And I through working with him and talking with him, Jules was like, wow, you guys have such a unique connection. I haven't really seen that between him and some other people. And I was like, yeah, I was like, he reminds me of my grandpa, Grandpa Goldtooth. And she's like, wow, well, his name is Charlie Goldcap. You know, like he's a Goldtooth also. <laughs> and so I just, you know, after talking to him for a bit, I asked her first. I'm like, do you think he would be cool about me, like basically adopting him? And she was like, oh, my God, he would love that. He loves you. <laughs> So then I told him at some point, I'm like, you know, I lost my grandpa gold tooth, but I would love to have you as my other gold tooth grandpa. And so he basically agreed. And he's like, come back, bring like $40. He's like, are you here till Saturday? I'm like, yeah. He's like, bring $40. And I was so confused. And I was like, okay, this is a weird adoption, I guess. So <laughs> next Saturday, I show up with $40. Um, and he he's like, this is just for um, the cost of my materials for X, Y, and Z. And he taught me his craft. He taught me how to make what he makes, which is gold, gold caps, gold grills. And he's done like Migos and all sorts of, you know, interesting characters. Uh, so he basically passed that knowledge down to me. And it was like this kind of weird reciprocity between me adopting him and like honoring him in that sense. And then him honoring me with his craft. Yeah. So that's how I, be I, I have a gold tooth with uh, I inlaid it with uh, turquoise and opal. And so you'll see that sometimes when I'm, I want to have it in. Yeah. And that's the story behind that the That was tooth. the story. Yeah, Alex, that was oh, the story. I Amazing. love that. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Actually, funny enough, I don't have as cool a story about it, but I decided for my 33rd birthday that I wanted yes. to get two gold grills. So yes. I did a couple of months yes. ago. Yeah, that's right. And it was the kind of thing that like, I think there's a lot of reasons why it feels like something that I wouldn't have or shouldn't mm -hmm. have maybe, but I, mm -hmm. it feels really good. It's like, no, this yeah. is also a part of like who I am. Yeah. And see, even with that, like um, a lot of our jewelry is like, when, even when I find pieces out in the wild, I'll say like, it has to choose me. Like people like oh don't you like this i'm like I, I have an actual connection with that piece whatever it is and that gold tooth was that one it was like it was like that thing where it was like i don't know why but i need to include this in my whatever <laughs> and also when i make jewelry it's very intentional it's all about the person i'm making it for and that's like a lot of what i do is create pieces for specific you know protection and other things because that's what we believe our our, our jewelry is it's a, it's a form of protection I also love the fact that you've mentioned two different um, people that were adopted in some way into your family, which isn't something you hear about mm -hmm. very much. I'd love to talk for you to talk a little bit more about that practice. Yeah, I think um, I don't want to speak for all indigenous people, but I think it's a very common indigenous um, practice. You know, there's a lot of us who may not have homes they come from different backgrounds and you know it's 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 a lot about the person their heart i think that um even yeah it's just like ex extending relations to one another because that's what my tribe specifically we have ke which is kinship and it is non-discriminatory so basically anybody and anybody can become like ke they can become family um and so that's why when i introduce myself in the first part of the beginning of this uh talk is is establishing who I am and where I'm from. So that means Zuni Water Edge Clan. That's a specific geological location, geographical location on the Navajo Nation. And we also have all these different determining, um, I guess, placers for people who are maybe not 
a part of the tribe. You're not, you know, there's like, a, I can't think of one right now off the top of my head, but there's ways we can relate to one another. Yeah, it's it's how we relate to one another. So there is a big, um, I guess, a big part of our culture is extending that relationship. So, you know, when you come in, you, you know, kind of do the work, you show up for community and you're doing the work, like people recognize that that you're a person of the community. That's, that's what I always like to say. Like you come up and you do the work and you, you know, do the actionable steps to like move forward with the community. You become part of that community and we recognize that. So there's ways of adopting people. And I'm, I've, I've also been adopted in um, other tribes as well. So Sisset and Wapit and Oyate is up in um, South Dakota and they are, have adopted my family also in the same sense we've made relations and we have ceremony with them. We, you know, just have a lot of reciprocity between us. And that, and that also helps us build solidarity amongst indigenous folks, but also, you know, it, it also extends past um, just non-indigenous folks also. Something you've also said is that your timeline is since the beginning of time. <laughs> and I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit more to some listeners who might not be familiar with the concept of time immemorial or immemorable, I think you used. Um, and I just wondered what that meant to you and your community. Yeah, time immemorable. Like that's that's um, as far back as our stories go. You know, we have, we, we talk about emerging from the earth. We have stories of coming up from the earth. So we've always been here. And you'll see a lot of like Western science and there are these other things trying to debunk that or disprove that. And we're finding even more and more today, like, oh, actually, people have been in the Americas for longer. And we're like, yeah, we know we've been telling these stories since right. the time are memorable. <laughs> like, we know that. We know. Yeah. So that's what it's a lot about is, yeah, like uh, a time frame that that is kind of unfathomable. And it's also really interesting because in, in, in my culture, um, our timeline is not linear. So it's actually a spiral. So you're like the axis mundi. The very center of that is you. And it spirals outward. And that's how we say we can talk to our ancestors because it's literally just a little a little leap on the map or whatever. It's it's not this linear thing. You can jump from one point to another fairly easy if you know the language, you know, that's that's a part of it. Gosh, I think there's a, there's so many things about what you've said already that are leading me in so many different directions. Um one of the things that you've also mentioned is like being in these different communities in um, mm -hmm. really meaningful and engaged ways. And one of the things I remember when we met was you were specifically using the word frontline in yeah. describing yourself and your work. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I always often describe my community as a frontline community. We're, we're indigenous people who are often at the front lines of all these issues. And we're also the ones to take the brunt of a lot of like, you know, any issues you can pick like water justice, uh, food sovereignty, climate justice, like we are at the front lines of those um, fights, more or less, we're the ones going to be affected the most, and the most immediately most times. And I'm talking indigeneity as like as a whole. Um, our narrative hasn't changed. We're talking about these stories that haven't changed over eons. Like we have always been for the planet. We have always been talking about these issues. And nowadays you're seeing more and more times that we're finally getting um, a place to speak or, 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 or yeah, just given the, the platform to express ourselves. But we have never changed our, our narrative. We've always been at that front line of that, that fight, you know. And in terms of being front line as an activist, that's also a place where you've put yourself um, quite a bit. Can you talk about some of those experiences? So I know a lot of people may have known me from Standing Rock, but that was not my first fight. And that's what's funny. Like, you know, I don't I never put myself in these positions. I've always responded to a situation at hand. So a lot of fighting for our water was just me knowing the importance like from hauling water. I know that as a young child, hauling water and the importance of having water for your your sheep and other things like literally is water is life like that's one concept that i already knew intrinsically just by my way of life and so having to defend that like having to actually stand up to to folks who want to steal our water away from us and you know do these or or even how they poisoned our water on the navajo nation um these are the fights that were basically put onto me and i just responded to them the best way i knew how like you know going out to the streets and like protesting doing all the stuff like that and then there's other actionable steps that I've taken. But yeah, Standing Rock was probably one of the bigger actions where I spent, you know, uh, 
at the very beginning of August to January. So it's like six months of just very traumatic um, experiences that I experience on the front lines, along with a lot of other beautiful indigenous folks. Um, yeah, I, I find myself in these spaces because that's what my core values are. It's it's protecting those things that we all need. And, that, and that's the thing that I always find very frustrating is how politicized or politically polarizing it becomes. It's like, we all drink water. Like people are like, oh, you still, you know, protesting that pipeline? I'm like, yeah, you still drinking water? I'm like, that's why I do the things that I do is because I'm trying to create a better future for all of us. It's not out of selfishness or it's not to make a name out of myself, for myself. I'm not trying to build a career off of this. Like it's just the necessary steps I need to take to ensure all of our futures. That's such an interesting way to put it too. I think the like the calling and the like I'm not putting myself in this. I am I have mm-hmm. to go. Like I have yeah. no choice, especially around pipelines. You have been yeah. so active and whether you've been feel that you are called to this or that you've sort of taken this on and not to make a career out of it, but to be involved as much as possible because at the base the base level this is a this is a core need for society for your community that's being mm-hmm. taken away can you talk more about your involvement in in movements and initiatives like the stop the money pipeline coalition and others that you're involved with yeah i remember i was working in um new mexico i was working as an outdoor adventure person that was like one of the leads there and there's no cell phone service. There's not any like Wi-Fi. And that's why I liked it. It was just kind of you're out there doing, you know, all the outdoor things. And for some reason, I, I got on the Wi-Fi, the really slow Wi-Fi. And somebody had messaged me. They said, hey, have you seen this? And it was the very beginning days of um, the No Dapple Standing Rock um, camp. It was a tiny little camp. And it, it, it looked like a ceremony to me. I saw it and like my being immediately knew that, that that felt like um, a home space for me. Like I felt comfortable. And they were telling me, they were telling me like, this is this is happening. They're going to start an encampment. And I just literally felt the molecule, my water molecules in my body being drawn to that. And I said, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to be there. I told them that. I didn't have no clue. I didn't have like, I probably didn't even have a car that would make it up to South Dakota at that point or North Dakota at that point. But I was like, I'll find a way and I'll be there. And I just put that out. I just spoke it into existence. And I think two or three weeks later, I was there like on the ground. It was it, it was just that. It was just like this magnetic pull. It was like the water pulled me as, as like, you know, we are beings. We are, we are all made up of like, you know, so much percentage of water. Like, and it does have a polarity to it. So I like was physically, you know, polarized to like go up there and do that. And I didn't know what it would turn into. I had no clue how big of an impact um, or how big the camp would be, any of that stuff. Like it's never been, um, like I said, like it's never been my career path. But uh, yeah, I, I follow the water. I follow the water to the next stream. That's what it does. It changes every single day um, and it finds its own path. One of the most like equitable things that's been popping up more and more is actually the land back movement. And that's where I'm focusing, I'd say, 85% of my time now. One of the things I love about spending time outside are all of the lessons we learn from the world around us. Like the fact that the sun always comes back out after a storm, or how even if an early snow happens, often those budding flowers can shake it off and still bloom to welcome spring. Or how a hike or a run might seem impossible if you look at it all at once. But when you take it step by step, go your own pace, and just put one foot in front of the other, you can get there and surprise yourself. Take your next step in the outdoors and do it with a trusted friend, Merrill. One trail, and that trail is for everyone. Learn more at Merrill.com. And if it's your first time shopping with Merrill, take 20% off your gear with the code TRAILAHEAD20. brief interruption to say we have a patreon we do one thing we learned about making podcasts is it's not cheap we make guest profile videos that go along with each episode because we know that visual representation matters but 
also not cheap. What we're saying is we'd love your support. We want to do more. More episodes, more behind the scenes, more conversations together. Our entry-level tier is $3, and that truly goes a long way in helping us keep learning and unlearning together. We'll be offering things like Instagram Lives, subscriber-only digital hangouts, think of these like interactive fireside chats, access to member-only blog posts, additional resources, and more. There may even be merch. Merch! So you don't want to miss out. Visit patreon.com slash the trail ahead to check it out and learn more about the levels of support. Thank you all for listening, for supporting these conversations and for supporting us. We love making the podcast and we firmly believe that we can bring more inclusivity to the outdoors and help us all feel that we belong outside together. One awesome conversation at a time. Love to talk about Land Back. Um, for those who uh, maybe are familiar with you on on Instagram as well, it says Land Back Fatty, which we appreciate as well. <laughs> but would love to hear from you about what it is and why it's so central and important for you. Yeah. For all of us. Um, shout out to the Land Back Fatty on Instagram. Yeah, it's me. That was the OG. Um, I'm actually thinking about changing it to Landback Saddy because, like, I'm a Pisces. I have all the feels and, like, all these uh, issues. Yep. <laughs> they get me. They get me. So I'm, I'm actually thinking about changing to Landback Saddy as a real thing. Um, but, yeah, the Landback um, movement initiative, you know, it's like we have all these kind of buzzwords that get thrown around. And now so more so today we have um, a bigger audience for these these buzzwords and catchphrases. Like, you'll you'll see res dogs on um i think hulu and they're talking about skoden like let's go do this like they have all these little catchphrases and Landback kind of started out like that it's it's it started out as this thing that we would just say like yeah land back like you know fist up in the air type of stuff and it became kind of like a catchphrase but what a lot of people don't realize is like the nuances behind it is like when we talk about land back it's an actual equitable thing that we're we're um working towards. So land back is, is basically talking about, um, free and prior consent over decisions made on the land. So if that, if, if land was given back to indigenous people, it can come in a lot of different forms. And one of the ways is just even just having consent over whether or not we want, you know, pipelines in the ground, we, we could have free and, and prior free consent to, to say, no, we don't want that. We, we would actually prefer that we do this and utilize the land in a different way. So it talks of a lot of land management issues. Um, we see like uh, the National Park Services, like a lot of that land could be given back to indigenous people. So we were the original stewards of those lands. And so by giving us um, stewardship back, we can make uh, decisions about how the land should be managed. Because as it's being managed right now, it's being kept in this quote-unquote pristine wildlife but that's not how it's ever been even um as we were here as indigenous folks we care took a lot of these parks we were the we were the stewards we you know basically rake up leaves and that's why we're seeing these mass fires in california is because the indigenous people who had that knowledge of those forests and that forestry for eons they've lived in that area forever and, and, and cohabitated with these um these these forests in that same way like they they recognize the forest as a living spirit and they they know how to caretake and make sure that these ecosystems stay in balance and that's a big part of even my myself where we talk about um, balance like hojo if that's literally what it means is balance and it's how do you live in balance with all things and and i think that's a big driving force of um, my own personal land back story how do we become better relatives and have reciprocity with the land that we live on? And I just see people just taking land and either destroying it or they're not utilizing it in the best way um, for the ecosystem around them. You know, like we put up our fences and we say, this is our land, but we don't do anything with that land. And that's, that's what, that's what the, the, that land back initiative, like it can come in so many different forms and it can actually come back in physically giving us back to land which we, you know, was illegally taken from us through a bunch of broken treaties. And you can look all this up. It's all available on Google. I'm not just spitting non-facts here. This is all factual yeah, things. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I think this is absolutely great 
encouragement of listeners who are hearing this to learn more about this and go research all this because it is, as you said, it's all available. Some of the pieces that I've learned in my own education of this have, have been shocking. And like, that's also probably something we could dive into of like, why is that so shocking to me? Like for some communities, as like as a white person, me reading up on this and being like, wow, I'm so surprised. It's like, there's a problem there, right? Like we need to right. be talking about this. We need to like integrate this into our common discourse. And and so I have a lot of thoughts on that too. <clears throat> I also want to touch on what you said about traditional ecological knowledge and land management. I had the very lucky opportunity to, to visit the Yurok tribe in Klamath, yes. California. Yeah. Yes. And what they're doing for, for folks that don't aren't familiar with them, um, they're actually... Well, they're doing a lot of different things, but firstly, they're buying back their land yes. with carbon credits that they're selling on the California cap and trade voluntary carbon market. And they're gaining like income and revenue from that. And they're able to buy back their land that was stolen from them. Yeah, we actually had a unique opportunity. We're uh, working on a project and we're filming up in that area and we got to make relations with Yurok people. Um, we actually got shown around with uh, Frankie, Chief Frankie. He's yep. one of the, yep, you'd probably yep. know him. He's one of the dopest people I know up in that area. Yeah, so we got to spend um, quite a bit of time with them in filming. We filmed a bunch of uh, excerpts and stuff. I don't know ever whatever became of that footage, but I'd like to revitalize it just to put it out there for people to learn more. And and yeah, and same to that, to that uh, talk is like we're just utilizing the systems that are put in place and how, how do we use those to our advantage? So yeah, like literally physically buying our land back. That's, that is what they're doing and using, yeah, the, the tax credits to basically fund that. And then they also have it written in their basically bylaws that they have to try and at least buy back any ancestral lands there. And I feel like that's, that's the model that works for them. And it may not work everywhere else, but just seeing it in place, it, it does kind of bring a tear to my eye because I'm, I'm really about that. And I'm like, let's get our land back. And that's the thing. It, it always sounds like such a selfish thing. Like, we want our land back. But like, no, like, if it's being mismanaged, like, we would, you know, we would rather us take care of it, the people who knew how to take care of it. Totally. Yeah, I think because of our education system, much mm -hmm. of our history that we are embarrassed about isn't taught. And or, you know, not even in a position to be embarrassed about. And so much of that is rooted to the genocide, mistreatment and ongoing oppression of black and brown folks in this country. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a planned out tactile position that they, you know, they don't teach us these things because then we would you would just know that that's intrinsically bad. You're like, oh, why would we do that to people? And they don't want to yeah, have that reckoning been trying to think about this question since the beginning of our conversation. I'm not sure I still quite have it down yet. But I think when you talk about the way that you grew up with your grandmother of being, you know, I guess we'd call it now off the grid. Yes. Um, and I, you know, when I was younger, I remember having the first time, you know, going to a super privileged boarding school and getting to be a part of this um, exchange program. And I, I lived for two months in Honduras and lived without running water or electricity. Mm -hmm. And I remember having so many beautiful moments like playing the guitar with my cousin, you know, yeah. with candlelight um, at yeah. night. And remembering that both those were really beautiful experiences and I learned a lot from them. And also that inherently, right, there wasn't a choice. Like they didn't have right. the choice to have electricity or have running water, there's something problematic about that still, right? That we are, you know, that there are many people on the Navajo Nation and other places in the United States that don't have access to clean water, to running water, to electricity. Yes. Um, and trying to hold both the beauty and the inequity there. Yeah. It's not a question, but it's something I've been thinking about since you said it, because I, I never want to paint a picture of only the beauty and mm -hmm. not talk about like the fact that there's in inequity happening at the same time. Yeah. Just the fact that like a lot of our, our relatives um, that are out in the nation, they don't have running water or clean water. Honestly, it, does, it comes down to actually just having clean water. That's probably a bigger um, thing than 
than just having water because you know we we will haul water we'll go long distances to get that water but a lot of times that water isn't even clean because of all the uranium mining they did in the 50s really poisoned there's a lot of heavy metals in that water so it 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 comes down to that basic thing of like well maybe even if we can't get them running water can we at least get them clean water um, I think about all those those issues all the time because, you know, I did grow up in that sense, but I also was very privileged, you know, to like how like not even half a mile away. People were living in like shacks, like like what I would cons- what you would consider anybody would consider like shacks. There was like a family of eight in a, in a shack. Basically, they didn't have any running water or electricity. And just thinking about those times, especially like, in the cold winter and stuff like that, like it just seems so I don't know it blows my mind that that's reality. And then we see it in, and that's just in the rural setting where I'm at, but we also see that in the cities. You have like, you know, the skid row next to high rise buildings, but people don't think about that in the same context. Like where do we, how do we take care of our relatives in those ways? No, I, I think it brings up back to this idea, like, you know, you use the word kinship um, and how that reframing um, of seeing our connectedness um also plays into these questions of like how do we care for each other um from everywhere from right talking about more rural areas when we're talking about the navajo nation to talking about skid row downtown la man it's just such a i think partially because there is so much hurt and there has been so much harm it's really hard for people to be able to say yes there is harm and yes there is hurt and we're going to care for each other. And then on top of that, because there are such vast wealth inequities in the United States, um, people just don't even have to see it. Um, so they, yeah. they, they don't know and they don't want to know, right? I think what people think is they're implicated in a problem. I think the opportunity is potentially being implicated in a solution. Um, but I don't know. I don't know how we learn that. Alex, we also want to talk to you about your art. And I know that's come up a a little bit already, but I wanted to shift back to that and just talk a little more about, you know, you, you speak about your art and creating and being a creator of both. I know there's many mediums, but art is a form of resistance. And I'd love to ask you a bit more about that and hear what that means to you. That kind of ideation came from where I came from like the res like and that's that's what my I guess I don't know a company or whatever my whatever it is that I am my brand is resistance art it's r-e-z resistance and it became just through trials and tribulations of my people we've always resisted we've always been like as long as we were breathing, we were resisting the like dominant, you know, force that was trying to take us over, basically. And so I always think of um, I come from a, a line of uh, Dene Navajo silversmiths, and I always refrain back to the stories of uh, when they put us in encampments. I mean, they're basically what you would, you know, they were encampments. They were internment encampments. They were they put us on these reservations, what they call them. So they forced us onto these reservations and they said, you're going to stay here. You're not going to go outside of these bounds. If you go outside of these bounds, we'll, we'll, you'll be shot and killed. Like that's how it was back then. And a lot of times, you know, we had our own kind of economy that was um, inside the reservations and we would actually take U.S. minted coins and we'd be melting them down for the silver and making bracelets and necklaces. So we're turning something that was like, you know, basic uh what do you call that capitalism we're taking capitalism and melting it back and making art and so it it always like comes to me in that way i mean it became such a big problem there was people who would even counterfeit they would take a uh, take a nickel and take make it into two dimes so they actually had to take all of our silver coinage off the reservations because we were doing this so often and making art and repurposing it like making beautiful things out of something that was you know forced upon us they actually took away all the coinage and they gave us paper money. So when I think of that, it's it's always this like, how do we resist um, the dominant cultures that are like forcing us to be something that we're not? And so that's where my brand of resistance arts, because I was born on the res, res and it's like resisting against that. Yeah. And also being able to tell my own story using my art. I think that's a big, a big part of it is being able to tell 
what I want, what I want to put out in the world, I can express that in my many art forms. And like, just for listeners, I do, you know, being, I actually started out with drawing. Drawing was like the most rudimentary basic, but then I went to pottery. I did a lot of pottery with my aunt. She taught me a lot of pottery tricks and um, traditional ways of doing pottery. And then I started doing leather work and from leather work, the same tools that I would use to stamp the leather are the same kind of metal stamps I would use to do silver. And that's something that's a part of my lineage um, being third generation. Like I've mentioned several times, um, it helps me tell a story. And then when I, we make jewelry, it's very intentional. It's for protection or for very specific needs. And so that's how I operate. Um, when I make things, it's, it's all about intentionality. Yeah. And just to add, I mean, as sort of a, an aside, but the studio we got to visit you in uh, yeah. for pottery, I guess, was it was more of a pottery space. But that was that was pretty magical. I still remember being inside that studio with you very clearly because I think I looked around at all of the things on the wall oh and yes. that community was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was kind of like a, um, the woman who um, actually was in that space her name is fox and she's yeah just a wonderful human being and she shared that space with me after she found out that i i did pottery and i had interest in using a kick wheel and stuff like that so she opened that up to me and it was one of the prettier like spots because it was just you know years and years of creation and art that was you could just see it on every single wall you just saw that love and that passion for what it is that they do in there yeah that was a pretty amazing experience to uh just be again watching you create Yes. So cool seeing you and, and seeing you do that. I read something and I was curious about it, about um, trying to create sound and maybe film and audio programs for maybe it was younger people on the res. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, a good friend and I started, um, actually was born out of Standing Rock. Um, the need was, you know, what, what tools can we give people to basically tell their own stories? Like we all have our own traditional stories we have our own backgrounds we have our own lives that we have lived and how do we give folks who want to talk about that the tools to express themselves and um yeah if you we if you can talk about it sing about it whatever it is you however you want to express yourself like we want to give people the tools and opportunity to be able to do that on a more like i guess more professional setting so a lot of these folks that we had um set up these recording studios with it was the first time they've ever heard themselves like, you know, played back to them. So when they were, they, they sing a lot of these songs in ceremony and whatever, it was the first time they ever heard that back, like played back to them. So it, it started out of Standing Rock and it was called, um, it's called Sovereign Sounds. That's the name of um, our little outfit. And we basically just teach community members a lot, mostly indigenous. Um, we've had a few non-indigenous people we've taught, but I'd say 99% it's all indigenous um, and focus mostly on the youth, but we also just teach anybody who's wanting to get into that space. So even doing podcasts or yeah, music and all sorts of things. The kids are just fantastic. We love working with them. So we have about three locations. We've done um, different workshops out like Don Awesome Res down in uh, Sales, Arizona. And we've done some in Albuquerque at NACA, Native American Community Academy. And a lot of this stuff's all on pause um, via the pandemic, but I would love to jump back in and hopefully, you know, expand a bigger, a bigger net for um, indigenous people, you know, not of just the Americas or not just a turtle island or whatever you want to call this continent. Like we want to expand that to a broader audience because I think indigenous voices are often drowned out or pushed to the side. So it's just a way of being a little more equitable about who has the mic, basically, like literally passing the mic to the the voices that don't get heard every day totally sovereign sounds i love that but we do a lot of um, my, my specialty is like um more so spoken word poetry that's my background it's just how i can um express myself in english because english is not my first language Dene, navajo denebizad is my first language and it's how my thought process is is built around that so when i'm trying to express myself in english it's a little it gets a little difficult because i know what i i feel internally is like uh from a, a Diné ideology but expressing that in english is sometimes hard to get the two so poetry is like the closest I, approximation i can get to expressing myself truly in the english form so that's a lot of what i do spoken word poetry 
and I do a lot of field recording. So just sitting out there, I'm like, it, you wouldn't know it, but I, I'm talking so much right now, but I like to be a quiet person. I like to sit and just enjoy. And that was like another teaching of my grandpa's is like, you know, you have two ears, you have two eyes and one mouth. You should be listening and observing twice as much as you're speaking. So that's a lot of what I do is like sitting out in the field with a field recorder, like listening to the little bird chirping or even just the sounds of water. I do a lot of water sounds. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I was told that as a kid too. I don't think I've done as good as you as listening <laughs> to it though. <laughs> I love doing that on our, when we were traveling around Alex, when we saw you last year, about a year yeah. ago, which is yeah. wild to think about. But, it is wild. Um, yeah. oh we gosh. did a lot of field record, like field sounds and recording and one faith or I would just walk off into a field or the ocean, but it was really yeah. cool and so peaceful, as you said, to just like your your purpose, at least for me, as also someone who <laughs> probably could stand to do the double, the listening and observing as talking. <laughs> but I think that the moment when walking out with a recorder and really having to stay quiet and have like yeah. you have to listen in that moment, you have to be able for the device to pick up on the sound like at a very basic level so it's yeah. it's a phenomenal experience to be able to just say like yeah i'm just gonna sit on this beach and literally record sound and like what right. a meditative experience it was yeah yeah and you start to look at the world a little different too because yeah. now you're hearing and like yeah seeing things that you normally would have just passed on by oh yeah absolutely absolutely well i really appreciate <laughs> you giving us your time yeah. and energy and and words. If you listened to the trail ahead last week, you'll recognize the next voice you hear, Lara Edmondson. Lara and Alex are partners, and both of them do incredible work. So while we wanted them to each be featured in their own episode, we also really love spending time with them together. So for this week's debrief, we bring Lara back in to talk with Alex about living a nomadic lifestyle and traveling with intention. So we find ourselves virtually with Laura and Alex, who are currently sitting in a closet with not only each other, but also their two adorable dogs. Can you tell us a little bit about how you find yourself in this situation right now? Where are you? What's going on? Who are these dogs? I'll let Laura take the floor on this one, I think. <laughs> we're at her parents' place yeah. in Tennessee. We are currently in my parents' basement. Alex and I are partners. We've been together for two years now. Yeah. And Stan here is the newest addition. Willie's been with me for about seven years. So yeah, we're just like a bunch of scruffy little van dudes. Yeah, little res dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's and that's actually, we didn't talk much about van life or a nomadic lifestyle can you talk a little bit about how that suits each of you a little bit or how you found yourself doing the van life thing and what are your current vehicles because i know there was some work being done on a vehicle when we last saw you oh yeah so i have been doing van life on and off for the last seven ish years more off than on but I've been full-time for the last three years, and I was in a Ford Transit. When Alex and I started our travels together, we realized pretty quickly that wasn't going to be enough space. And we have since, I guess just a few months ago, we've upgraded to a 2003 Sprinter van. Yes, and it's been night and day change. Um, just my background about traveling, I've always been very nomadic. I think it's part of even just my culture, we were pretty nomadic, semi-nomadic, and we travel around a lot. And I've maintained that part of it. And I've always traveled around everywhere. And I like to travel intentionally. I think I told you all about that. Like I don't just go place to go place. I'm usually going for a purpose or a reason. And doing the van life has expanded that a little bit because now I get to stop off at new places. And especially with the new acquisition of this van, the new van, I can stand up in it and it's just, it's life-changing basically. Yeah. It's... And we both don't really have a, a steady like home base. Actively travel around to different spots. Yeah. I was working a like nine to five job, but I was working from home and talked to my employer and asked if I would be able to shift to working on the road again because I was missing van life and they went for it. 
So when I met Alex, it just made sense for us to keep traveling together because we were both in that phase of life anyway. And yeah, yeah, like Alex said, we got this. It's an old van. It's a 2003 Sprinter, but it's like a whole new lifestyle because it's just so much more comfortable. It feels so much more like home. And yeah, it's just it's been a dream. We've really been loving it. Yeah, we redid the interior a bit and it's been really nice. And we've been in a pandemic, so having your home on wheels has been like a- extra bonus in that sense. Totally. Did you have to do a lot of renovating or did you like learn from previous build experiences what to do this time? I've always tended to go for more simple builds. Like I don't do plumbed in water. I don't no. do toilet, shower, all that. Like I want to be able to fix something if it breaks. And so I tend to skew towards like more simple builds that are functional but very easy to maintain and it's been great so far totally faith and i talk about this a lot but i have such a newfound appreciation even more than i had before for van lifers etc for y'all as well because of i had never done this before and when we were doing our podcast filming tour filming for the podcast last january when we came to visit you we were living four of us in that van. And like Faith, I think it was you that said something about the misconception around, oh, like this person lives in a van. I don't know how, like, how, like, how are they so on top of their stuff? Like, how are they so on top of their emails? I, I don't get it. They live in a van. And I remember Faith, you were like, oh my God, like the people that live in, like these folks have to be so dialed. Like you have to be yeah. so organized. You have to be so Like, you know exactly where everything goes. Faith was really good at this, especially in our crew, like really dialed with every compartment was had a very specific purpose. So I just anyway, I have such a newfound appreciation for the not only the nomadic lifestyle, but also living communally and possibly maybe made different by the fact that the four of us like weren't partners like the two of you. It was like very much like we're a crew, like we're a video crew versus a couple. But anyway, I just give you so much credit for that. Yeah, y'all had a nice setup. <laughs> you did. We were eyeing it up. It was probably part of what pushed us to really. Yeah. Like, maybe we really should go for it. It was definitely cool. We definitely it cool. like it's. It was for four people to be based out of trying to figure out how to be as self-contained as possible filming during a pandemic so we really wanted to be able to just be this moving pod but yeah profound respect for living in such a small space it is a skill shifting gears a little bit over the past couple of years with i still don't know what we're calling this moment of racial reckoning which is hopefully still ongoing but the concept of traveling while black or traveling while a person of color traveling as black and brown people in the United States has become a little bit more like known. That's a thing that there's things that you have to deal with that we're being treated in different ways when traveling. So I'm just wondering like what you, what your experience about like van life and representation van lifing and like some of those real things that you might run into on the road, like how that safety and safety, like how that impacts your decisions and lifestyle really yeah i think about that all the time like traveling while indigenous is probably one of the most dangerous things you can do i mean there's a lot of different things that that come up like just me as a being who i am as a person like it's political like my whole my whole yeah my whole existence is political it becomes very politicized very quickly for my core values and all those other things like i do i i been in a lot of very detrimental situations so i feel like i have a kind of a heightened awareness to a lot of dangers or threats or potential dangers just living my life like i try like i said i travel a lot and i've gotten myself in and out of a lot of really dangerous situations and so i think just having an acute awareness of what doesn't feel safe and trusting your gut in a lot of places has saved me more times than not yeah And I think something that I'm really trying to work on is being safe, but not fearful and trying to find that balance because yeah, there are very real fears that come with being on the road, especially when I was traveling solo that come with being on the road as a solo black woman. It's a scary thing sometimes. And having the assurance of having somebody on the road with me is so nice, but yeah, just trying to operate from a place of safety and not fear. 
No, I think that makes so much sense. And I think that obviously we had our own journey of van lifing, et cetera, but really coming home from that and reflecting back on that experience, I think it's so, at least like amongst white folks that I know that do this, or it just feels like the van life community as a whole, there's this, there's, there is a privilege involved in being a van lifer to some extent. And I also think though, that a lot of times that privilege is because those folks are white. And so there's that sense of like, we're here, we're sleeping wherever we want to sleep, and we're doing the activities that we want to do without bounds, which is, again, the freedom of living on the road and nomadically is incredible. I do hope our listeners here, especially if they are white, I, I want that light bulb to go off. And I want this conversation to spark something different around how, yes, there's an inherent privilege in being able to like not have that fear or not even think about safety. I think that striking that balance, Laura, is amazing. And I, I think that's great. And I also know that there are a lot of folks out there that I think have never thought about this endeavor as potentially unsafe. So highlighting that in this conversation is just really interesting as well. Yeah, I think I'll speak a little bit for Alex here. We both hold a lot of privilege in the way that we present into, to the world. We're both very mm -hmm. light skinned and palatable in that yep. way. And like, that provides us a lot of safety. But still, like to be parked somewhere illegally and not know it and then have a police officer knock on the door and tell us to move like that could be potentially a very yeah. dangerous situation yeah. for us. Yeah. That's just one of the myriad things that comes to mind when I think about like, where are we going to be for the night? Where are we going to travel to next? What mm -hmm. area can we safely stop and fill up our gas tank? Those are the kind of things that we have to consider that, yeah, like you said, a lot of folks don't maybe yeah. even realize is a factor. And even inversely, we were very fortunate that we um, got a really good deal on this Sprinter van. That Mercedes symbol carries a, a certain yeah. prestige and weight to it. So yep. even working out, yeah, in certain places, it, it, it can bring its un, unwanted attention also in that same sense. Yeah. Ours is a fake Mercedes, by the way. It <laughs> just has a actually. badge that says Mercedes, but it's actually a Dodge. <laughs> On paper, it's a Dodge Sprinter. The front says it's a Mercedes. Interesting. <laughs> I've totally had that happen. I, I worked on two, another film project where it was three women living in a van. And, and I remember this is random. We yeah. like drove up to this one place and we were, I think, filming when we came in and the windows were wide open at the place. And the guy inside was like, ah, oh, fuck, what are these people doing in their Mercedes? They were filming. He was talking so yeah. much yeah. shit through the window and we yeah. could hear him. And so I went in and when we went in, I addressed exactly what he had said. And he was like, oh, like end up buying us shots because he felt bad. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I was just like, I got you, yeah. dude. But yeah, it, it does. It, it carries a lot with it for sure. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, I'm I'm the type of person I'm a lot like my mom travels around just as much, if not more than me. And she has a unique ability just to make friends. Like I was saying, like making connection or making relationships, like that's how I carry myself. Like I'm able to make friends or, you know, talk to people in that way because we are just all humans at the end of the day. And we have way more in common than we do. Yeah, not. That's another thing as part of traveling. Like I'm able just to talk to people sometimes and be like, hey, like, what's up? And Laura's seen it a lot where I'm just like, I'll just start a conversation with people just because. Truly, Alex has never met a stranger. <laughs> He's great at putting other people at ease. Just like you are kissing babies like that kind of vibe. He brings that everywhere. And I am a little bit more guarded, especially like out in the world. So it's nice to have yeah. somebody who can buffer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, like, trying to identify the things that are your strengths and, like, your places where you can shine and places of power, I think. And I feel like, for me, my ability to be in a relationship with people is also one of those strengths. But it's not something that's as, like, tangible as, like, you can write it down few years back I'd be like I have no marketable skills <laughs> like <laughs> you can't write on a resume like really Fire. good at people <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is a skill and it can really bring a lot to every I think like community or like task or team to have someone that can ease the room or kiss the babies I think is cool. <laughs> and I do be liking my babies <laughs> Alex I know you touched on this already but I'd love to hear more about that concept of traveling respectfully I know you've talked about that in different posts you've made etc and, and what does that mean to both of you as you do as you partake in this nomadic lifestyle 
Yeah, particularly when it's it's about honoring people's regions or whatever. Like I, I travel to a lot of other indigenous people's places of inhabitants. So I always like to pay respects to wherever I'm visiting. And I know a lot of there's a lot of erasure and a lot of removal of people. So like even just visiting here in Tennessee, I don't know the, the indigenous tribes here, but I still want to pay respects to the, the land that I'm on or where I'm at in that sense. And also, however I can show up for that community, wherever I'm like actively engaging, whatever, like it's a reciprocity thing. Again, it's just like, how can I leave this better than when I got it? And that's always one thing. Like even when I st- stay with house guests, I'll like try and do little household things that maybe most guests wouldn't think about. But I like to travel in that way and just be extra conscious of those things. And it's so obvious when we travel that Alex has really invested his time into building these relationships. Because like the first time he came to Tennessee, we went to the Cherokee Res to their like fair, their annual fair. And I was like, okay, so I'm from the Smoky Mountains. I'm going to show Alex around. Hopefully he has a great time. And he like knew multiple people (laughs) there. He's never been here before. He knew people there that were like greeting him as a warm, like close friend. And I was just like, what is happening? We were in San Francisco in October. We're walking down the street and somebody stopped him and was like, oh, hey, man, I remember you from such and such. It's very obvious that Alex pours his time and energy into building these relationships and is very intentional about it. And it's taught me a lot of how I can move in those ways also. And also, I will just keep hyping you up, babe. Alex doesn't just make relationships with people he's really intentional about how he impacts the land and makes relationships with the animals too like we'll be driving and we'll see a cody or a hawk or something and he'll be like okay we got to pull over and make an offering and he that's just part of the way we travel and it's really beautiful to watch it's had a really strong impact on me and how i can be more mindful of the things around me not just where we're going but like how are we traveling on our way to that destination appreciate the hype (laughs) (laughs) I love that. We can definitely learn a lot from that. Yeah. I don't have any other specific questions. I do wonder if there's anything that you all have been thinking about or talking about that's been on your mind or like a question you wish we asked that you'd like to like say more about. I He's going back to land back. There's this huge project that I've been working on with my family. I talked about reintroducing the Navajo Truro sheep back to the res. We are just now in the completion of actually getting land back for a center called the Hajo Center, which means balance. And we're actually, it's going to be the living and breathing embodiment for basically a cultural resurgence of Diné culture. So the Navajo Truro sheep will now be living on this property and will be doing a lot of work to hopefully revitalize a lot of the culture and bring in elders and basically creating a community that is close to what we were doing before contact basically we're just trying to get back to our traditions and our roots but also integrating obviously today's world and seeing what's possible via our culture and western amenities like running water and stuff like that we want to see what's possible um, and how to how we can actually live hopefully in in some sort of symbiotic relationship with mother nature out in new mexico so we actually got some of our ancestral lands back we purchased it back it's not like we did you gave it to us or anything we went through those venues we're speaking about yurok and yeah we acquired this property that should house this you know project that i'm working on and it's all being very traditional we, we kept it as a matrilineal we're a matrilineal society so our board of directors is all Dene women matri- matriarchs so We're trying to do it the best way we know how. Yeah. Wow, that is so cool. Yes, I'm so glad to hear about that. Yeah. It's been really beautiful to watch just as an outsider, like on the edge of this project. It's been really beautiful to watch all of these things come together. Like, yeah, Alex's grandparents sowed the seeds of this project, like just bringing back this churro sheep. This goes back generations and it's all falling into place right now. And it's just it's like watching magic. Yeah. And it's something I've been working on my entire life, like whether or not it was directly or indirectly, this has always been my life's kind of goal is to get back to a place where I can have my childhood memories for other children. Like I want other kids to experience what I experience or have that type of lifestyle that I was accustomed to living with my grandparents. Like I was saying, like getting up and herding sheep and doing all those things like praying in the morning, like all those things that I, I guess took or didn't realize how important were to me in my like my life, I want to pay that back or I want to be able to have people experience that. 
kind of goes back to the earlier non-question I asked about the yes and, because I think you're right, like creating opportunities for people to have that experience and for that experience to be a choice. So it's not yes. a lifestyle that's coming out of a lack of support or really based on broken promises because that yeah. well-being was supposed to be included in those treaties. But the ability to maintain culture, share culture, learn culture, and also have what at this point in this country is like should be basic, right? Basic needs that are provided for yep. people. Yep. It also makes me think of a few years back, I was working with teenagers. We brought a group to the Navajo Res and we were meeting with some folks from Utah, Dene Bikea, about um, Bears Ears. Yeah. And I remember afterwards, like in trying to create some work around that, a friend reminding me, like, because I think sometimes we learn to talk about Indigenous people and elders in a way that is respectful, but I think also almost has a lot of assumptions in it. The idea of the no kids were falling into some of those um, tropes. And my friend was reminding me, like, it's important to remember that we don't know everything about the land. We don't know everything about every animal. Like, we've been disconnected from yes. a lot of that. And so the yeah. opportunity to relearn it is also what we need right. to be able to learn that. Yeah. And we need space to like to, to sit and listen and watch. That's what my elders did. My ancestors did. They they had that that afforded them. They could sit there and watch the land grow like they they really took in all those um, elements. And they, they probably did. I'm thinking way back. Who's to say that they didn't talk to the plants? Like maybe we just lost that language. We don't know. That's the thing that like I want to explore is like the actual possibilities um, that are actually out there, like taking that time to get back to those really deep roots that we have. And yeah, be able to explore that. Yeah, it makes sense. Like in my ongoing quest to try to become a plant mama, people are like, talk to your plants. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. <laughs> but that comes from somewhere. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, thank you both so much for your time. We so appreciate it. To learn more about Alex, you can find him on Instagram at Alex underscore PI3. And check out his website at www.resistanceart.com, spelled R-E-Z-I-S-T-A-N-C-E-Art.com. Check out our show notes for more links related to some of Alex's stories. And if you appreciate the show, please consider supporting our work on Patreon, an online website where you can financially back the work of your favorite creators. You can find us at patreon.com slash the trail ahead. The Trail Ahead is created and hosted by us, Faith E. Briggs and Addie Thompson. It's produced by Anna Agogo at Adode Media. Stephanie Aguilar is our editor and sound designer. Podcast art is by Shar Tuiasawa. Check her out on Instagram at Punky Aloha. A huge thank you to our team from Merrill, our amazing partners who help us bring the Trail Ahead to life. Thank you also to our team on the visual side, Tyler Wilkinson-Ray and Fred Gorris behind the cameras, and Jillian Sorrell, who edits our video profiles. For updates and additional links, visit trailaheadpodcast.com. Send us a note via Instagram at at trailahead underscore podcast, and please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash the trailahead. Thank you for listening and for spreading the word. Don't forget to check out our video profiles we make about each of our guests. And to all of our incredible guests, thank you. You make the world better. See you next time on The Trail Ahead.